Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning uh, to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20 is going to be our text this morning. So we continue this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Listen to what the word of the Lord says to us. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for it is a clear and guiding standard for life and righteousness. Thank you that you have not left us to roam about in the darkness in these things. Would you open your word, Holy Spirit, today that we might see wondrous things in it, uh, that it might cut to the division even between the soul and spirit, that we might hear your voice clearly amongst all the chaos and other voices that surround us, and we might respond in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, is again the series we're in on conversion. And what we've been looking at in this uh, study of the Sermon on the Mount is how a complete change of our whole life comes when the righteousness of Christ works its way uh, in through our hearts and it works its way out in our everyday lives. So we've looked at a number of these applications um, throughout the, the last several months as we've looked through this series of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and this is what we call conversion. Um, God's righteousness working within us, working its way out through us in our everyday life. A complete change of character, change of form, and a change of function. But here in chapter 7, we begin to come to draw near to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We draw near to conclude um, this sermon building to a necessity of choice. And that's what Jesus wants to emphasize. That's what he's been emphasizing throughout the chapter, actually. We'll see that here in a moment. Uh, But Jesus leaves us with no room here for a middle way. He calls us to choice. And this morning, uh, he has a particular type of choice that he wants to emphasize to us. But here's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount. As you've seen, 
The Sermon on the Mount has a theme of contrasts. There are two ways to live. The righteousness of the religious leaders that is an external only righteousness of their own making or true righteousness that Jesus has come to fulfill that the Old Testament looked towards that Jesus has now fulfilled. You can choose each of those righteousness. One that is just external only or one that is true and lasting and works its way from the inside out. So we can have... That righteousness, true righteousness, or false righteousness. Okay, we must choose. We can have two treasures. One, we must choose which treasure we want. We can have one of two masters. We can have one of two ways of judgment. We can have one of two directions in our life. One of two groups of people to occupy or accompany. One of two destinations. The way of life and the way that leads to destruction. And in this passage, Jesus calls us, specifically in verses 15 through 20, to a choice of our influences. Choice of our influences. And so here's kind of the main thing I want to focus on this morning. And I believe this to be the main point of this passage um, in light of what Jesus is getting at here in the rest of the chapter, and it is this. We must carefully weigh our influences according to truth to choose the way of righteousness. We actually have to take time to carefully weigh out our influences according to truth so that we would choose the way of righteousness in Christ Jesus. Specifically here, Jesus has the for us in light, in view, a choice of who we will allow to instruct us, who we allow to guide us, and what are the influences in our lives that we will listen to. Okay? So, um, several years ago on an anniversary trip, uh, my wife and I went to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I went against my better judgment and followed a GPS. This was before um, the days where we had Google on phones, and it was just the thing you stick on your windshield deal and that kind of thing. And I went against my better judgment and followed the direction that this GPS sent us. Looking for Interstate 40, this GPS took us up a mountain. We never saw a car coming in the other direction. I should have taken that to be a bad, bad sign to begin with, took us up a mountain and then told us to turn left on a dirt service road. And let me just tell you, we were in a Volkswagen Passat. <laughs> Clearance is like this, okay? I, I, I can scarcely remember a time where I was more terrified. I was calling out to the Lord. I scared my wife to death. Lord, help us, because I'm thinking we're going to hit a route. We're going to be out in the middle of who knows where with who, who knows what kind of thing. And we're going down this mountainside in a VW Passat, and it was all because we had decided to follow the wrong guide. You know, it's easy to get lost if you're careless and unmindful, but you can really get lost if you choose the wrong guide. 
And so we cannot avoid this choice. We must choose either the way of the world or the way of the Lord. And that's what Jesus is drawing us to consider as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. Which will you choose? There's only two choices. And a key factor in this choice will be where we look for our instruction. And so Jesus identifies uh, a prophet as the source of our instruction. A prophet is simply a teacher of God's word. The role of a prophet isn't just foretelling as we oftentimes think about a prophet being in the, in the sense of like telling the future. But a prophet's role, that was actually a minimal purpose of their role, but their main purpose was foretelling. The role of a prophet was to teach others God's truth by explaining it to them and then helping them apply it to their life in the present. So they would explain God's truth and how the, their hearers might apply that truth in their present circumstances. And if they did have any telling of the future, it was always directly related to how that might be applied in the present. So again, their foretelling was always subject to their foretelling. So a prophet's main role is simply to be a guide in truth to explain and help us apply those things. Anyone that stands in this pulpit is doing the work of a prophet. Anyone who explains to you and gives application from the scripture specific to your life is exercising this role. But Jesus says there are false prophets that we must be aware of. And a false prophet is someone who twists the meaning of God's truth and twists the application thereof. It, they'll contradict it. They will um, most tragically even make it hard for others to find the narrow way of salvation. Which, as we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 7, is hard enough to find on its own. But now we have to consider there are actually influences that would make that even more difficult for us. Both the Old and the New Testaments deal with false prophets. I'm going to give you some understanding of how the Old and New Testament uh, understands false prophets for us. They fill us with vain hopes, Jeremiah 23, 16 tell us, tells us. They lead us away from truth and away from God, Mark 13 tells us. They are able at times even to bring Others to amazement through signs and wonders, Mark 13 tells us again. They lie to others out of the deceit of their own minds, Jeremiah 14, 14. They speak visions of their own invention and not of God, Jeremiah 23, 16. They secretly, that's key, secretly introduce heresies that lead to the denial of Jesus from within the church, 2 Peter 2, 1. They, are off, they often enjoy widespread acceptance and even popularity. Luke chapter 6, verse 26. They speak what is pleasing to the ears and whose teachings suit the passions of their hearers. 
2 Timothy 4, 3. And they are this, and this is probably the most important consideration. They are often a means to our testing, to test our genuine love for God and obedience to him. Whether or not we will follow him or if we will heed the instruction of fatal and faulty influences in our life. And that's Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. And so Jesus tells us numerous times to expect them, to be aware of them, and to be ready to respond well to them. But he admits this. He admits that discovering their influence is oftentimes more difficult than we might at first glance. We might, uh, just like finding the narrow gate is difficult and walking in the way that is narrow is hard, so too can being aware of false teachers actually be difficult at first glance. So he tells us to be aware. That word beware in the Greek here means to hold the mind towards. So you're holding your focus you're engaging this in a direct and intentional application of your mind. It is to apply ourselves to pay attention closely and cautiously. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And in the Old Testament version of the, or excuse me, the Greek Old Testament the uh, version called the Septuagint, which is helpful for us to understand how these words were used in that day, we find this word actually being used in Deuteronomy 24 in dealing with how to carefully deal with diseases and even contagions. So this is not something you deal with like lightly, right? Like pandemic plague, right? You're not hasty with this, right? So this same sort of care and caution and awareness is what Jesus calls us to in our influences as we try to pursue the way of life. Listen to how Jeremiah 6 gives us instruction on this. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. If you look at that passage in its context, in Jeremiah 6, verses 6 through 7, you see these commands. If you are to find the ancient path and walk in it where the good way is, where rest for your souls is found, then you must stand, you must look, you must act, or ask, excuse me, and you must pay attention. But yet we find God's people were not ready to pay attention. So following the narrow way to life is something that requires care and consideration on our part that God calls us to. I read a story some time ago um, in a news story about how to kill cows with kindness. It's kind of weird, right? How to, how to kill cows with, with kindness. It's not as you might first think it, it's going to go here. 
But the story featured a scientist that specialized in the sensory experiences of cattle. And apparently this information is something that the beef industry is willing to fork out large sums of dough over. All right? Apparently, here's, what, here, here's what's been found. Apparently, high stress levels in animals actually diminishes the quality of beef. Some of you are like, well, of course. This I didn't know. And so at the moment of, of death, if the animal is startled, there's a hormone release that will actually diminish the quality of meat. And so the beef industry had actually sought out this scientist that specialized in how to best um, lead those experiences for the cattle. They had, this particular scientist had learned what distressed the cows most and what relaxed the cows best as well. And as it turns out, the biggest problem she identifies is that of novelty. Novelty. The animals had to be kept from anything that was unfamiliar to them. Anything along the way that would cue them in on something different happening here. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. She found that. And with this realization, this scientist devised a new technology that has revolutionized the slaughterhouse industry. They weren't forcefully prodded off a truck, as we might have thought this kind of happens with a cattle prod or something like that. But they're lulled into this ramp that mimics the ways that they had traveled many times before. And as they go along this path, they don't even notice that they're being raised up on this conveyor belt gently, subtly, until they meet a blunt instrument that delivers a fatal blow. And just like that, they go from living animal to meat in a moment. Like that. Transformed immediately. Without even being alarmed by it. And the scientist that designed this new technology affectionately referred to it as the stairway to heaven. All right? It's a little bit twisted, I know. But there's something, I think, more menacing illustrated in this for us. We often encounter the most lethal threats when we are least aware of them especially in our spiritual life. You see, false teaching is subversive and subtle. It is administered drip by drip by drip. It doesn't come at us all at once and announce its presence usually. It comes to us in the subtle, everyday nudges that come to us in life. You see, we are most easily led by harmful influences when we are most contented and comfortable in them. 
We are lulled into destructive error, not by this drastic choice oftentimes, but through a gradual familiarity that fades. This is, of course, the illustration that the author of Proverbs uses in Proverbs chapter 7, um, when it records the young man after walking closer and closer and closer to temptation gives in to the, the adulterous woman and he is like an ox led to slaughter, Proverbs 7 tells us. You see, there's something I've seen as a pattern just in, in the short time that I've been able to walk in pastoral ministry and as a believer Myself is I've seen a pattern in those that have wrecked their lives, those who've fallen from the faith, who have ruined their influence, who have made a regretfully destructive choice. They didn't choose to implode all in one moment in a sudden rash decision. Usually they found themselves in an unfamiliar place saying, how did I get here? After a progression of smaller indiscretions, a progression of unwise choices and influences that looked harmless and familiar in the moment. How many times have we found ourselves in this? Think about perhaps the most regretful decision you've ever made. Was it not preceded by likely small indiscretions over time that usually considered, is there anything wrong with this? And those are the things that lead us away and ultimately led to those undoing. And usually those that found themselves in these drastic situations, I've noticed, had voices in their lives that were oftentimes giving approval of these indiscretions along the way in the name of support. Sometimes even Christian support. And this capacity for deception and self-deception is what scares me most about myself and about those I get the privilege to serve. And this is what Jesus is calling us to beware of. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just call us to beware and then leave us there to figure it out on our own in some kind of paranoia. But he gives us a careful understanding of how we might actually have this awareness by choice and see these commonalities of false teachers as he calls us in response. So I want to give you from this passage that Jesus draws out five indicators and responses to false prophets. And the first one Jesus identifies is this, they wear disguises. They wear disguises. And so the call then for us is to look beyond outer appearances alone. Specifically, he gives the illustration, they, are, they wear sheep's clothing. They pretend to be something that they are not. They pretend specifically here to be good. So they will have charisma. They are usually adept at drawing people in and bringing attention to themselves. 
even in oftentimes dazzling ways of wonderment. You see, those false influences that would lead us away from the narrow way have become good at conveniently slipping on and off false identities, goodness on the outside, whatever that might be. And so here's what that means for you and I. They want to look like you. They will look like you. They will claim to value what you value. They will pose as a follower of the Good Shepherd among the rest. They will assume your identity and your attitude as a believer, even as a Christian, but only one outwardly. And again, Jesus is primarily addressing the religious leaders here. They are, they are a great picture of this, right? They have assumed only an external righteousness that's not authentic and only assumed an outward goodness and meanwhile led people to further despair. So we have to even consider these from within. They wear disguises. They want to look good on the outside. So they'll look just like you and I. But here's the other thing. They're not just posing in the background. They are at the very forefront. Their goal is to work their way to the very center of power and the helm of influence. They wear disguises so that they might make their way from within into the middle and so not only that leads us to the second thing, not only do they wear disguises, but they have a malicious purpose. You see, while they pose as sheep, they are actually wolves. You know, we, most of us have grown up kind of watching Wile E. Coyote kind of thing. This is not this sort of ignorant kind of uh, predator here, right? Most wolves usually attack the flock under a cloak of darkness when they are out of sight and when they are most vulnerable. But these are more crafty, more covert, and more risky kind of wolves because they seek to infiltrate and patiently lie in wait within the flock. They mislead to get closer and make their attack more deeply and more intimately. And these just aren't any type of wolves. They have a special kind of agenda, Jesus says. They are ravenous wolves. One that is violent and destructive. They want to devour and enjoy the spoils for themselves. They want to exploit the flock. And so this is important for us. False teachers use those that they lead for their personal gain. They use them to serve their own platform. They use them to serve their own personal influence rather than emulating Jesus, the good shepherd, who lays his life down in service to the sheep. And here's the key distinctive between a true godly influence and guide in your life and a false prophet, a false teacher in our life. 
A true guide seeks to serve at great cost to themselves to lead them, to lead the hearers, to lead the sheep to the good shepherd. The false teacher assumes an outward appearance to use the sheep for personal gain rather than emulating Christ and to draw attention to themselves. So inwardly is their true identity. And this is Jesus' point. The inward person is the source or agent of thought and behavior Jesus shows us. It's in the inner places of ourselves that dwell the most deeply formative things about us. What we are inwardly, we are truly. And so the writers of the Gospels record how Jesus shows us that all evil things come from the inner person. It's the inner things, Jesus tells us, that make us unclean. It's the inner things that make us sinful. It's the inner self where sin reigns. It's the inner self where Jesus comes to do his converting work. And so if it's hard for us to identify a wolf in sheep's clothing, how do we then identify them? Well, Jesus tells us. You better recognize, one, the fruit of their character, verse 16. You better recognize the fruit of their character, verse 16. Jesus transitions illustrations here from uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing now for us to be able to discern the inward nature of someone by their fruit. He transitions from this illustration of wolves and sheep to an illustration of trees and fruit. This is something that is much easier to discern, right? You see, an evil act a person does has an origin within, Jesus tells us. He's teaching us something of human nature. The problem of sin comes from within us. And so we are sinners not because we sin. This is important. We are we sin because we are sinners. There is a nature problem. We need new natures, and that's precisely the change that conversion brings by faith in Jesus, a breaking of the power of sin in our inward being so that we might no longer be slaves to sin and our members being subject to sin, but that we might, placing our trust in our faith in Jesus, our inner being be now slaves to righteousness and him. Okay? We are no longer now under law, but under grace, Romans tells us. And so that's what conversion does, a change at work in our inner selves. So it's not enough to cover over outward behaviors. We must look deeper at the fruit of a life to discover its true qualities. And Jesus tells us we can recognize these fruits. The word here, recognize, simply means to perceive through observation and gain understanding and knowledge. Jesus seems to assume we can do this. We can perceive these things. We can observe these things. We can use our mind to discern these things properly and be able to know these things. And just as we are able to recognize a fruit-bearing plant by the fruit it produces, so too are we able to identify an authentic 
spiritual guide by their fruit. Their lives are worth emulating fully. Their motives are selfless and mostly expressions of the fruit of the Spirit. They bring out, Jesus shows us, from their heart good things out of the good treasure of their heart to produce good things. So you can look at an outward life and see what is treasured inwardly, Jesus tells us. And he says, grapes and figs are not picked out of a briar patch, right? And while outward appearance will deceive, the fruit of a plant will always give up its identity. While outward appearances can deceive, the fruit of a plant will always give up its identity. And so look at verse 17. Jesus tells us, Every healthy tree bears good fruit. Healthy trees cannot bear bad fruit, but diseased trees cannot bear good fruit. The Greek word here translated uh, translated healthy means this. It's simply the word good. But there are two words translated differently here that mean good. And I want to make a distinction here because this is how Jesus uses them interchangeably here in this passage. This is the first one. He, the word here, healthy, means intrinsically good. Excellent. The quality of being just and righteous. It is moral goodness. It is the word God speaks over creation in its pre-fallen state. It is Good. God saw that it is good. And as one commentator notes, this formulation shows us clearly what goodness consists of. It is the love which the Christian is enabled to exercise, which is the innermost part of purpose of the law. So this goodness comes about through the love of God at work in the Christian. Goodness Moral goodness, intrinsic goodness is what's at stake here. This goodness is an inward goodness brought about by the love of God working through salvation by faith in him. And the love of God that has brought a whole conversion to the inner life then has an effect upon the life of their character. And so the converting work of God is to bring his love and his goodness to bear inwardly in a life that it expresses itself outwardly through good fruit. And that's the second word, good, here. The first being an intrinsic goodness, excellence, moral quality. This second word, good, is simply an outward good that is honorable in form. So a healthy or good tree produces good fruit. A intrinsically good, where grace is enthroned and grace is at work and grace is converting, produces an outward goodness in the life. Inward goodness produces an outward expression of good. And so function, this, this word means beautiful, pleasing, bringing together of the senses in a pleasing function. And functioning in an agreeable manner with a focus on outward appearance. It is simply this. It is beautifully good, well-ordered, and serviceable. 
but there's still a moral quality here. So again, one commentator is helpful here. Fruits are good only if they grow and they ripen on the basis of divine repentance. And they can ripen only in a man for whom this repentance has become the divine norm and the power of his growth so that he is converted in this sense. This goodness comes, friends, through the power of a life that is strung out with repentance and has come to a divine norm of casting themselves upon the Lord in this way. But by contrast, the inwardly, the inward work of goodness showing itself outwardly, we see now a diseased tree producing poor fruit. It is decaying and rotten fruit, harmful and corrupting, and it produces bad fruit. This fruit possesses a serious fault and is worthless and useless if you pick it up. Although it might on the outside seem to appear well, its taste is bitter and bad when you take of it. And fruits are this outward expression of inner inner nature. And so we must ask this. Does this person's character exemplify the fruit of the spirit or the fruit of the flesh? Does this person's, this influencer's character uh, exemplify the character of Christ in meekness, in gentleness, in love, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in self-control? Or are these missing or more replaced by enmity, impurity, jealousy, and self-indulgence. These are the fruits we must examine. These are the fruits we can recognize as outward expressions of character and outward expressions of inward nature. But we also must recognize the fruit of their instruction. So not only must we look at the fruit of their character, but we must look at the fruit of their instruction. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus records... Or Matthew 12 records Jesus confronting the religious leaders on the very words that they were speaking in their instruction. Not only does he call out their character in many times, but here he specifically focused on the very words of their instruction. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks Chapter 12, verses 33 through 34. And then verse 36, he concludes with this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And so as one commentator says, the actual instruction of a false instructor does not align with Scripture. And over time, it actually produces an increase of ungodliness and bitter division that is destructive to the faith. So we are not just to examine the fruit of character and conduct in the life of a person, but that of the influence, or that of their message as they influence us as well. Is their teaching in accord with sound doctrine? Is their teaching, does it align with Scripture? Many false teachers distract with their own distinctive authority or 
They may draw in a new way, or they may again blur the view of the narrow way that leads to life by declaring that there's more than one way, that there's no impending judgment to consider. And this was the practice of the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah 23, verses 16 through 17, this is what's recorded. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows their own heart, they say, no evil shall come of you. And so listen, the deviousness of the instruction of those that would influence us for error is this. They echo the voices of self-deception of our own heart. Do you see that? They echo the voices of the self-deception of our own heart. That's the deviousness of this. And so as we examine the instruction of our influence, we must not only be familiar with the scriptures and what sound doctrine actually is, but we must subject our own hearts to the scriptures. We must subject ourselves to sound doctrine and be subject to it. Otherwise, false teachers will just echo back our own stubbornness of heart and deception of ourselves. And that leads us to our last consideration. We must beware ultimately of the reality of judgment. This is what Jesus lays out here at the end of this passage. That the ultimate end of the bad tree that does not produce good fruit is that it is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the reality of God's judgment is laid out here by Jesus. It's those who are given over to error who will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus makes this clear. Just in the same way, there are two choices, there are two destinations here. One that ends in judgment and one that ends in life. And so then, friends, the consequence of the false teacher becomes the consequence of those who are lulled to follow them. And that end is destruction. The Scripture calls it the second death the judgment of hell. Jesus is clear about this. And so we must beware of the influences in our life, how they lead us, how they shape us, what choices they lead us towards, the narrow way that leads to life or the broad way that leads us to destruction. The wisdom of this world or the wisdom that comes in righteousness. And so may the words of John the Baptist to the religious leaders of his day and to their followers be a sobering reminder to us. In Luke chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As the worship team returns, I want to recall to you the main point of this again is we must carefully weigh our influences according to truth and choose the way of righteousness. There, we cannot avoid this choice. So will you choose the way of the world or will you choose the way of the Lord? Are the influences that we approve of and give heedance to, are they leading us towards more faithfulness to Jesus, or are they leading us with the masses 
towards our own forms of righteousness. And so as we consider these things, let's pray together.